1: And welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. This week, I am joined first by Dana Larson, the cannabis uh, activist and now uh, safe supply for opiates activist, to talk about 420, uh, driving-related deaths around 420, and some surprising new research that debunks earlier conclusions that there's an increase associated with the event. And then I'm joined once again by Paul Doroshenko to talk about BC's new civil force forfeiture laws, how they are going to impact drivers in super bad ways, and a recent decision from the BC Supreme Court in Moore and ICBC dealing with discrimination and um, place of residency in insurance in British Columbia. So really interesting case, and I hope you all enjoy the episode. So without further ado, here is Dana Larson. And welcome back to the podcast, cannabis activist extraordinaire, Dana Larson, who is taking time out of his very busy day preparing for the 420 event in Vancouver to talk to us about driving related legal issues surrounding 420. Welcome, Dana.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure.
1: Oh, yeah, anytime. Um, So... A couple months ago, um, or maybe I guess last year around 420, there were a lot of studies uh, that were cited by media surrounding driving and 420 and they talked about an increase in impaired driving around the event and you looked into that, is that right?
2: yeah well i mean i I really I mean when it first happened, I get these calls from the media I normally haven 't even seen the the story yet, you know, and then I have to comment on it, so I try to point out some of the flaws that I could maybe think of in that moment or some angles that haven 't been taken uh, but then this this new study came out and looked at the original study and it just is so clearly debunks all the claims in the original study about. Uh, uh, all the, the how deadly it is to drive on 420, and and really scaremongering uh, headlines about dramatic spikes and right after 420, and it's just so clear that it's all nonsense. And uh, yeah, we, we should get into that and explain, you know, how how and why that is.
1: Okay, so well, tell me first what what was the basis of the original study's claim that there was this spike in in deadly impaired driving around 420.
2: Well, they, they looked at uh, uh, statistics for car accidents, uh, or it's actually for fatal uh, collisions or deaths, uh, on April 20th after 4.20 p.m., and then they compared that with the week before and the week after, so the day, uh, uh, April uh, 13th and April 27th. And they looked at those three dates uh, after 4.20, and they concluded that there was a slightly higher rate of accidents or fatal collisions uh, on April 20th than there was out of those other two dates. And they use that to extrapolate and come up with some very scary uh, numbers across the board.
1: And was that? Did they look at just one year, or did they look at multiple years?
2: They looked at multiple years. I think they started uh, in the '90s, or around the time that the 420 sort of cultural phenomenon was starting to happen. But there was no real controlling for, you know, if if a certain area was having a 420 event or not, or if the 420 culture was sort of stronger in one area and so you know one of the things that that came out of the study was that uh, states like California and Colorado that have big 420 events and uh, and really have a big sort of cannabis 420 culture, they actually had a slightly lower rate of accidents on that day. Uh, but that some other states that, uh, like Hawaii and Maine, I think, that don't really have any 420 events, they had a slightly higher rate of accidents. So there was already some suspicions in the original study that the data wasn't really going to withstand that serious scrutiny.
1: Okay. And so then what did uh, this most recent study look at, and how does it debunk the original data?
2: Well, instead of just having three data points, uh, of the April 13th, 20th, and 27th, they looked at the whole month of April. And uh, and it's really a very simple uh, change of perspective. But when you do that, you see that April 20th falls uh, roughly in the middle of the month when it comes to uh, how many uh, fatal collisions they are. And oddly, April 13th and 27th seem to fall uh, near the, the lower end for whatever reason. But really, it just seems to be natural variation. If anything, if you look at the chart, the day that has the highest is April 1st. And it seems a bit higher than all of the rest in kind of a substantial way. So maybe there's something there around April Fool's jokes or, <laughs> or something causing accidents. I don't know. But, I mean, in any month, you're going to see a natural variation over the month just for your randomness sake. But So when you look at it over the whole month, you just very clearly see that, um, that, that 420 does not stand out at all.
1: And if you zoom out and you look at it, like month by month over the course of a year, does does April have a higher accident rate overall than in, than all other months?
2: They didn't. I don't think they actually did that. They just compared it through to April, uh, like through other days in April and stuff. Right. I mean, so it's possible there might be some seasonal. No, actually, they did. I'm sorry, they did actually pull that out overall, uh, and they did look at all the days out of the year. You're right, and they and they did find that it was. Um, uh, 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 around uh, uh, July 4th and around Christmas uh, there was a spike in accidents and uh, you know that's likely caused by alcohol also just caused <laughs> by more people being on the road as well right I mean mm-hmm. more drivers driving just means more collisions even if everything else is the same and certainly those are busy times so you know uh uh but the, the the results show that you know april isn't isn't a special month and 420 uh doesn't stand out in the month of april and certainly doesn't stand out over the year uh as a, as a big day for these kind of collisions
1: Now, is there any reason that you can think of for, like, the motivation behind the original study, sort of looking at this in a way that is obviously flawed, the way you've explained it, having three data points is not a good way to analyze data? Um, Were the authors of the study part of an anti-cannabis lobby, or, or is there any motivation behind this that you could discern?
2: Well, you know, I'm not sure. I I, I looked at their other studies they've done, and I I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, they seem to be pretty readily accepting of this information. I mean, I think that probably with researchers of all types, there's a a tendency towards confirmation bias, and sometimes you find what you're looking for. You know, I I mean, I, I would be very surprised if they had picked other days and then decided to compare... Just those two days, because it fit their perception. That would be, uh, you know, malpractice as as a researcher. I think it just happened to be that April twentieth was slightly higher than the thirteenth and the twenty seventh. And seeing the confirmation of what they were hoping to find, they were like, okay, we've proved it. No need to look further. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you did look further, you see that that the original analysis is just lacking in in, in so much depth.
1: Okay. Now you're about six weeks away from the annual 420 event in Vancouver, and you've been doing, as you do every year, all of this organization leading up to it. What steps do you take um, at the event and, and before the event to deal with the issue of you know, potential impaired driving?
2: Well, I will say, first of all, there's a lot of police officers there yeah. <laughs> uh, at the event. Uh, and they're very friendly and supportive and not in a hostile or anything. But certainly, you know, if they see anything or anybody obviously impaired trying to do anything, they they can and will and do give people the test or a hand-eye coordination test. And uh, I've seen people have the test and then be released because they they passed it and they were fine. Uh but, uh, that, that's up to them to deal with that. Uh, certainly when we sell, it's edibles is really kind of the issue, you know, oh, yeah. more than smoking. And, uh, and, and we, we, we encourage all the booths that, that are selling edibles to, uh, give out warnings and we provide them on, on our written materials and on our signage and on our, our event guide and that kind of thing with edibles, you know, the, the common sense advice, take it easy, uh, start small, you know, don't, don't overdo it. Uh, mm-hmm. you've got all day. And uh, and certainly, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people actually drive to the event as well, uh, because there's not really a parking area where you can come. You know, the ones that park in that are mostly the exhibitors who park nearby to be able to get their stuff in and out. But really, it's public transit and people on foot, I would say, is the vast majority of those who attend or who are from the local area. But... Otherwise, you know, we like any other event that, that serves alcohol, we encourage people to be responsible. We try to keep an eye out, and uh, there are police there to enforce those laws, and um, that's how it goes.
1: Now, I saw some criticism today, and I expect I, I know what your response is to this. On Twitter, um, some people saying that you're opposed to paying the policing costs associated with 420. Can you respond to that? Is that true?
2: Well, you know, we, we've been a, this is the 25 years we've been doing this event, and, and for most of that time, it was at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and it was getting very crowded and busy at the Art Gallery. So in 2016, we moved to Sunset Beach, which was done to uh, reduce public uh, uh, issues, to reduce the congestion and blocking traffic, to make the event safer and healthier because we're able to offer services in a better way at that location. And uh, and we're also uh, for the first time able to sort of generate revenue at at 420. You know, we this event evolved over the years from giving away cannabis to having cannabis raffles to people setting up or coming with bags of cannabis and joints and cookies to sell. The people starting to set up tables, and over the years it started to get so busy, and the event became so big that we needed to reserve spots for people, and we needed to charge them so that we could raise a bit of revenue to pay for the staging and pay for the sound equipment and pay for the other costs that also continue to escalate as the event gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Sunset Beach in 2016. Um, It was actually really good that year. There was no rain, and so the park didn't have to be closed afterwards. And uh, we had a few issues with the garbage that we didn't quite organize properly, but it was really good. In 2017, we started charging more for the booth space because we saw there was potential there. And we told the, the, the park board that we would cover any costs associated with refurbishing the field. And those costs came, I think, seven or $8,000 in 2017, and we paid that amount. In 2018, we told the City and Park Board, we will pay all of the costs that you have associated with this event, which come to around $65,000, but we're not going to pay the policing bill, partly because we can't, and partly because I don't think it's appropriate that you can't have a protest in Vancouver unless you give the police $100,000. That mm-hmm. seems to be kind of against the point of having a protest.
1: And, and it's, we, don't have,
2: so we don't have that kind of money anyways.
1: It's not but, other so, grassroots organizations. Like if, if Black Lives Matter or um, the Women's March want to have a protest in Vancouver, they don't pay policing costs.
2: I actually just was talking to one of the organizers of the Women's March in Vancouver. They don't have a permit. They don't pay policing costs. And it wouldn't be appropriate for them to be charged that. And, you know, even big mainstream events like the Pride Parade, Now, the Pride Parade is one of uh, a few events in the city that gets, it's got special status, and it gets uh, $50,000 from the city each year. It doesn't actually get cash. It means it just gets $50,000 off the bill that they get from the city after the Pride Parade, right? Right. And in 2016 and 2017, their policing bills had skyrocketed so much that the Pride Parade was about to go bankrupt. They were deeply in debt and couldn't cover these costs. And in the end, the city ended up giving them another $150,000 towards their policing costs to kind of just basically have that money goes from the city to pride to the police. And even then, they still had to cancel the Davie Street uh, party last year because they couldn't pay these policing bills. So if an event that's got, you know, TELUS and uh Budweiser and all these major corporate sponsors and that get pretty significant uh, discounts from the city still can't pay their policing bill. It's a real problem. So, you know, uh we can't pay that kind of cost and a lot of other events can't. But even if we could, I don't know if that's really appropriate for a protest to be charging to be paying that kind of stuff right but i'll say that counter
1: the notion of protest
2: yeah it kind of goes yeah and and, and really we're the only protest in the city the only unlicensed event that pays any of those costs that sixty-five thousand dollar check we wrote last year we're the only event in the city that that pays any of those kind of things and it was the we paid the entire invoice from what the city gave us which covers sanitation traffic uh, 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 engineering and all their other costs, uh, all phone calls, whatever. And then for the park board, we paid all their basic costs. But there was a couple of things in the park board invoice that we didn't pay. Right. One of them was they wanted to bill us for lost revenue for the permit that they didn't give us.
1: That so you applied for. A
2: permit. <laughs> yeah, we, we applied for one in 2017. They didn't give it to us. And then they tried to bill us for the permit that they didn't give us. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird, right? So we didn't pay that. And then they also tried to bill us for regular staff wages spent involved with our event. So not overtime or special wages, but as part of their regular job, we interact with some of the park board staff and that. And no other event gets charged that kind of cost because it's not an extra cost. It's just part of doing their job and part of their salary. And so I think those kind of costs are really punitive. The city doesn't try to charge us that. But the park board is vindictive and wants the bill to look as big as possible. So they put in things like that that are challenging for us to pay. And I don't think, like, I want to be treated like other events, but other events don't, don't get billed those kind of things.
1: Okay. Well, I know you have many other interviews today, so I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I'm really glad you could join me again on the podcast, and I do want to have you back. I'm going to make you commit to it now <laughs> to talk I about your your uh, redevelopment of Overgrow Canada for opium, um, because I think that that's a very interesting issue, and I'd love to talk to you more about it.
2: Well, in the meantime, people can go to overgrowcanada.com and learn more about it there, and If they want to get involved or book a booth at 420 or find out more at 420vancouver.com.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Dana, and uh, good luck with your other interviews today.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime.
1: And now welcome back again to the podcast, against my better judgment, Paul Doroshenko, who is going to stay the whole time.
0: I've been invited back. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) I had to run. I had to run. It was like the (laughs) middle of the podcast and I had to run. I had a doctor's appointment.
1: Yeah, well. Um, yeah, you, you you get to come back. We'll see if you uh if you live up to uh expectations this week.
0: Oh god, don't put the pressure on me. Anyway, take the pressure
1: there are important things to talk about lots of them N- namely uh we're not going to talk about snc lavalin as we were going to uh instead we're going to move on and talk about the new civil forfeiture laws that the provincial government here in british columbia tabled uh this week that are astoundingly bad for drivers
0: yeah it's funny the um The civil forfeiture legislation often engages drivers. Uh, I bet if you looked at their caseload, a significant portion of them would be them trying to seize the car or seize the cash that they found in the car or seize both. And a significant portion of the time when we hear about it, it's a relatively inexpensive car. It's the person's you know the, their whole world their their $8000 Nissan Altima or something like that
1: always and an Altima
0: so often an Altima and um the uh you would think it'd be Escalades no it's, it's usually Altima's but in any event the um the, the person the, the, there's no point in spending a bunch of money on a lawyer to try and get your Altima back so it's it's free uh money, stealing it from people that the police can use the Civil Forfeiture Act without really any repercussions and no significant likelihood of anybody putting up a fight.
1: But um, the police, the, the prosecutors, the Crown have never tried to use civil forfeiture to punish people who drive badly. Um, They did try that, actually. I lied. Um, They did try that several years ago. Um, This went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. There was an application for civil forfeiture of offense-related property um, made by the Crown for a chronic drunk driver. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, No, 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 no. When civil forfeiture laws, they're talk they're talking about taking away things that benefit people, or uh, the benefits people have gained from their unlawful activity and stopping them from using those benefits to continue their unlawful activity. Taking away a car From a person who is a chronic impaired driver, who is prohibited from driving anyway, and who you can monitor and deal with through already existing lawful channels, just eventually prevents people from rehabilitating, and it serves no valid public purpose. It's just a cash grab by the government.
0: That was a long explanation.
1: It was. Well, I was trying to explain a Supreme Court of Canada decision.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: And now the provincial government uh, does what governments often do when uh, the Supreme Court of Canada or any court says, no, 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 that's not how the law was supposed to be used. They wrote a law that allows them to use it that way.
0: Yeah, so the uh, amendments to the Civil Forfeiture Act have been presented to us in British Columbia as a way to deal with, um, this money laundering problems we've got with casinos and people buying high-end cars with cash and this ongoing problem we have with, uh, real estate speculators and really sort of, um, a, a large black market money economy in the Vancouver model of money laundering. And so that's how it was presented to us, um, in the uh, earlier this week when uh, our Solicitor General uh, started talking about the legislation but we decided to dig down in it and when I say we I mean Kyla she actually read it and found the frightening part but I mean it the former legislation was frightening before but this is even worse so what it says here is uh, in a proceeding under part two this is a, like a civil forfeiture proceeding a driver of a motor vehicle who failed to safely stop the motor vehicle within a reasonable period of time after being signaled by a police officer and in a circumstance where it could have resulted in bodily harm to a person, provides proof in absence of evidence to the contrary that the motor vehicle is an instrument of unlawful activity and therefore can be seized for civil forfeiture.
1: So if you drive drunk... And you blow through a roadblock, which happens a surprising amount, <laughs>
0: oh.
1: um, your car will be seized and sold for the government.
0: Or if the police are behind you and you drive further than they think is appropriate before mm-hmm. you pull over because you are uncomfortable pulling over in the location you are, you don't believe that it's actually a police car or Not whatever. Not well and you're a young
1: yeah. woman alone at night.
0: Exactly. Um. And there's been police officers who murdered young women alone at night in California. I remember that on forensic files, but
1: we're we're told, this is one of the many things that women are told that men don't know that we're told. If you, if the police signal you to pull over and there's no street lighting and no traffic, keep driving until you can pull over in a well-lit area.
0: Well, you're going to lose your car, Yeah. Uh, especially if using a motor vehicle could have resulted in serious bodily harm to a person. Using a motor vehicle at any time, anywhere, could cause serious bodily harm to a person. Yeah, motor vehicles—we are often reminded—are are you know more dangerous than a gun. Uh, you know, you can use it as a weapon. Um, it, just, it doesn't matter how you drive it. You you are a threat to the public when you drive. You could uh, cause a, an accident that results in seriously body, bodily harm to a person. It doesn't have to have happened, obviously, because the saying "could have." Uh, but that alone. So, you know, this is one of those circumstances again. And it just feels like, do they even read the fucking legislation before they they table it?
1: Well, I think they did. They wrote it. They know what's in here. I I would suspect that they're trying to target those cases. and And you and I both know that they exist, where people flee from the police and drive dangerously to get away from the police because they have large quantities of guns or cash or drugs in their vehicle that they don't want discovered. But the reality is that the majority of people who are going to fall under this section are the totally normal upstanding citizens who are having a bad day. You know, if you look at dangerous driving cases, you look at cases like where discharges were granted for dangerous driving. Um, Those cases, lots of them involve people who had a mental health breakdown. Um, There was a guy who didn't stop for police and ended up killing somebody because his wife was like in labor in the car and he was trying to get her to the hospital. Um, There's a a case called Poitras involving a famous First Nations artist who had bipolar and she was having a, a, a manic episode and drove dangerously throughout, I think it was the city of Edmonton, before she was finally stopped by police. And all of those people got discharges. All of them you can kind of understand why they ended up in that situation. But under BC's civil forfeiture laws, all of them would have their vehicles taken away.
0: So this is, uh, somebody wanted to, was complaining to me on Twitter that uh, we weren't, um, I wasn't explaining why people should be concerned about civil forfeiture basically they were taking the position of you know if you've done nothing wrong why should you be concerned um because you can do nothing wrong actually and, uh, and still lose your vehicle. It can, there's, there's so many different times, uh, uh, so many different ways that the police may think that you're not trying to pull over. I, I I've just had so many files over the course of my career where the police officer put in there, well, drove, you know, 200 meters beyond, mm-hmm. uh, after I turned the lights on and, uh, mm-hmm. after I activated my emergency equipment and Um, And
1: the law, too, like the law in British Columbia surrounding failing to stop for police, you commit the offense under the Motor Vehicle Act if you don't stop immediately when signaled by a police officer to do so. So if that's the offense, um, then the interpretation, I think, that the courts will take in determining whether they failed to safely stop at a reasonable period is going to be closer to the immediate line than to the, you know, six eight ten blocks line
0: i'd be really tempted to stomp on my brakes stop immediately
1: well then you'll get uh unsafe stop ticket
0: yeah i'll probably get arrested and tasered too yeah yeah
1: and uh and your car will be seized
0: and my car will be seized because i stopped in uh unreasonable time period too, too reasonably quickly, <laughs> Yeah, too quickly.
1: It's a reasonable period of time. So it has a to reasonable
0: be period the of right time.
1: amount of time, yeah. according to an officer. So
0: you, yeah, a police officer's subjective opinion of what he, he or she thinks is a reasonable period of time for you to pull over after they've activated their lights.
1: Well, I mean, technically, technically it's objectively and subjectively. But the problem no, is No, not you with the civil
0: forfeiture law.
1: But well the problem just is just whatever the
0: police officer says. Well
1: this is the thing because the problem is you have identified it is that people have to litigate to get their vehicles back. The police take the vehicle first, the civil forfeiture proceedings are initiated, and then you have to hire a lawyer and fight to get your vehicle back. And if it's your $2,800 Chevy Cavalier, which, of course, we all know uh, could have resulted in serious bodily harm because it's a Cavalier. To the (laughs) driver.
0: (laughs) Without having an accident, probably. Yes.
1: Uh, Ford Pinto. Uh,
0: Cavalier is probably as dangerous as a Pinto.
1: (laughs) The, The point is that you lose that. And it's just gone. It's gone forever in those circumstances.
0: I'm sure I told you this. I've thought about it lately. So maybe I maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But I was in traffic court at one point and there was a police officer who took a phone call. It was obviously from another officer. This was in the hallway outside of traffic court. And I overheard him talking. And they were talking about having seized somebody's vehicle. And he said, well, yeah, I know. I have I know we've got nothing on him. Yeah, I know there's nothing. But That's okay. I want to take his car anyway. Yeah, let's just take the car anyway. And I was like... Okay. So that's civil forfeiture there. That's how it works. That phone call, of course, will not be provided as a transcript in anybody's disclosure. And there was some poor schmuck out there who lost his car. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, the, the, the justification or the sort of the, the way that, that people look at it from the other side is, oh, well, that's just one guy. I guess he should have litigated it. Ha ha ha. You know, from my perspective, it just makes me sick. It makes me sick to know that that happens.
1: Now I know it's not driving law related, but there was one other aspect of the civil forfeiture <coughs> bill that I wanted to talk about um, with you because it was the other part of it that made me sick, and that's the how they're now going to determine whether somebody is a member of a criminal organization um, for the purposes of determining whether their offense related to criminal organizations. So in the legislation, it says that a person is considered to be a member of a criminal organization which uh, engages more significant burdens on them to disprove uh, that the uh, cash or house or whatever seized car um, seized was an instrument of unlawful activity um, if they have ever previously been convicted of a criminal organization offense. So. Why does this actually does relate to driving law? Why does this relate to driving law? Because you could have, you know, Johnny turn his life around, who at 21 was convicted of a criminal organization offense because he got a little bit mixed up with a certain well-known motorcycle gang and, uh, um, you know, sold a little bit of coke, but got arrested, got scared turned his life around, and now, age 50, working as an accountant, has a few too many drinks with clients at the end of the night, and uh, drives his car uh, badly, blows through a roadblock. The police want to seize his car, and the burden on him um, is, is on him now to prove that his car is not an instrument of unlawful activity, and that he's not a member of a gang because of his previous conviction from more than 25 years earlier.
0: He went to the end gang life seminar and, he did. Uh, and it did nothing for him.
1: Turned it around. <laughs> Turned
0: it around and it did nothing for him. And yeah. Now there's a presumption against him. Poor schmuck.
1: Yes. And that's that presumption. It says um, that uh, it doesn't say anything about, you know, uh, an amount of time that can pass. So your criminal conviction for this can haunt you forever.
0: Especially if you're driving a Harley Davidson, they're just going to pull you over and seize your Harley Davidson.
1: Yeah. And then prove you're not uh, a member of a criminal organization. You had that conviction 30 years ago. Now you're
0: screwed. Thanks a lot, BC government. Anyway, the, uh, between that uh, changes to the Motor Vehicle Act that we talked about recently, where uh, we now have the um, over 08 at your kitchen table or over 08 in the bar or over 08 in the restaurant or over 08 wherever you happen to be, uh, not necessarily related to driving. Um, and now we have this.
1: Yes. And also, uh, with respect to those convictions, they don't just include, like, you're found guilty and given a, a fine, suspended sentence, jail, CSO, something that res- result in a criminal record. Any conviction um, under the civil forfeiture laws as amended in BC includes an absolute or a conditional discharge and... <laughs> A finding of not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder or defect. So an NCRMD designation where you are not criminally responsible for your behavior because you are mentally ill still will follow you even after you complete the required treatment program, Mm -hmm. you get released into the community, you take your medication, you, you live your normal life. You are still tainted by that conviction Um, that non-conviction as a conviction for the purposes of civil forfeiture. It's discriminatory.
0: You're a member of a gang in Surrey. You've never done anything criminal, but they want to prove. You've got to prove your loyalty to the gang. So you've got to go shoplifting and you steal some Wrigley's gum and you go to court and you get an absolute discharge. And then 25 years later, you are a doctor and uh, you don't stop fast enough for a police officer.
1: You lose your Tesla.
0: Yeah, and you lose your Tesla because
1: you're a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so you can probably afford to get it back. Um, so that is uh, one a significant development um, that certainly is going to impact driving law in the province. And
0: but the hope- point the point is that these things, like lousy pieces of legislation like that, never end up being election issues. So it's like the government can get away with putting things in any law, you know, unless it's going to be struck down with a a charter argument, they can put in stupid things like this in in legislation. And it really is disturbing to me because it seems like it's more brazen than ever.
1: Yes. Well, I think if they start interpreting this as broadly as it's written and the police start enforcing it as broadly as it's written and the government starts taking cars as broadly as they're allowed to, I think it will become an election issue because lots of normal people are going to lose their vehicle and they're going to be ticked off.
0: They're going to lose their Nissan Altima. Think how many people got immediate roadside prohibitions um, over the years. And, you know, in the first version of the scheme, uh, it it never became an election issue. With 11,000 people issued it in the first year in the unconstitutional version, and those people got no remedy. That's 11,000 people. They're not going to take 11,000 Nissan Altimas. Be careful if you drive a Nissan Altima because you are being targeted. By the
2: way,
1: speaking of other people who have been targeted, um, BC legislation may target new drivers to BC who come with good, clean driving records and claims-free histories from other provinces.
0: Well, from Ontario. Yes. You know, maybe not from other provinces where they have socialized car insurance, Manitoba and Saskatchewan.
1: Right, but many provinces and territories in Canada, um, don't, and your driver's license doesn't include an insurance card, and you can drive on somebody else's insurance, and it's not an issue, which, you know, sweet if you're a bad driver.
0: Well, yeah, you can, I mean, if you live in BC and you want to get your license as quickly as possible... Uh, when you're, you know, as early as possible, even if you don't have a car to drive, because once you've got your license, they start recording it as claims free history, if you don't have an accident, but if you move from another province, you've got to provide all of this documentation from the insurance company in the other province as I had to do it when I moved here from Alberta to show that I had been claims free for so many years. And then I still felt persecuted.
1: And you felt persecuted because you weren't paying the maximum safe driving discount that you would have earned had you been a driver in BC all that time.
0: Yeah, by the time I moved here, I had like uh, over a decade of accident-free driving. My, but you
1: my still earn your right to drive but the maximum discount in BC.
0: I was angry for lots of reasons. I had a brand new car with 1,400 kilometers on it and they made me take it to air care. Yes. Which is what caused my war on air care.
1: <laughs> well, Little you won that know, war. <laughs> I did
0: win that war. Little do <laughs> people know that I was the one who started the started the battle.
1: Anyway. The I didn't
0: start the fire. It y- was always burning.
1: Okay. Uh, moving on from mm. your sad quotations of song lyrics to the decision of Moore and Insurance Corporation of British Columbia because somebody who was as incensed as you decided rather than wage a war on air care, which doesn't exist anymore. They were going to wage a war on ICBC. And they sued ICBC.
0: And, and, and she lost.
1: She did lose, yes. Yeah. She argued two things. Uh, she argued first that uh, the provision violated her mobility rights. Um, essentially, the charter guarantees in Section 6 that people shouldn't be denied um, economic Ac- development or activities basically i don't know well no know you've got
0: the right do. to move from province to province and you can't be discriminated against on the basis of the fact that you came from another province
1: yeah but the law as as it's interpreted section 6 um has actually said that you you know your mobility rights include your ability to gain a livelihood um so you can you can't be discriminated in in how much you earn or your cost of living because you came from another another province
0: but you can be discriminated against. You might be considered a, you know, certified boiler maker in Manitoba and you move to B C just because you're a certified boilermaker in Manitoba, you may not be a certified boilermaker in B C because you might not meet the requirements. So that is like a, a mobility issue, but you can't you don't get a remedy under the charter for that.
1: Right. It's any laws of general application in the province still apply to you.
0: Yeah, but Miss, what was her name, Moore?
1: Ms. Moore argued that uh, ICBC had basically breached her mobility rights by saying that um, she was uh, required to pay more for insurance because Ontario had a different insurance system than BC did. And even though she had years and years and years of claims-free history, um, she didn't have an insurance certificate as part of her driver's license. So it was unknown whether or not her claims had been made or whether they were made under somebody else's insurance.
0: I think there's a point though, that, um, because when you're dealing with private insurance companies, you're going to go to your insurance company that insured you. And if you didn't have insurance, you're not going to have an insurance company that insured you that can provide that letter and that, that assurance to ICBC to show that you were claims free. Right. And I think that's why ICBC took this position.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I mean, ICBC's position makes sense. Um, There are, though, things that ICBC does to out-of-province drivers that do discriminate based on residency. For example, if you get an N license in BC, like you start your driving here, you get your N, and then in the middle of having your N, you move to Ontario, and you get an Ontario license, and you live in Ontario for 10 years. It's a full
0: class 5. And you get a full
1: class 5, and you have a good driving history, and then you come back Mm -hmm. to BC... ICBC makes you even though they actually can't and I have successfully persuaded them that this is discrimination and they've abandoned this policy after I've written them on my cases but they still apply it generally they make you go back to your N in BC and complete the two years safe driving
0: so you go from having a class 7 then getting a class 5 you can be driving with your class 5 you can have a class 1 I had a guy who was a truck driver who had been a truck driver for 10 years registered out of uh, Alberta or somewhere like that and then uh, came to BC to move back to BC and they wanted to make him a class 7 again and uh have him drive around with a n on his car for For two years for two years preventing
1: him from his livelihood yes that would be discriminatory under the charter icbc agreed with me when i said that i sent them a letter and i said look i'll litigate this i know but did they just
0: change it for your clients or did they change it generally
1: no they changed it for my clients they told me they were changing it generally but i've had many calls from people in the same position since then they haven't changed it
0: generally well there's an interesting thing and it's the uh people may not know this about the city but um you know nothing is really clearly stated in bylaws in in most cities you've got to try and go down there and figure it out or maybe they have it online and Uh, you can have all sorts of different inconsistent bylaws. Bylaws can replace other bylaws. You may have a bylaw that doesn't fully replace another bylaw. Um, When it comes to ICBC, you know, the the rules are set out in the legislation and then they have all of their different um, rules for application, but uh, the interesting thing is a lot of it ends up being governed by what's programmed into their computer system. So (laughs) you think that the rule may be this, but if their computer will not let you do something, uh, as you're clicking through their system, then um, That's that, the de ends, facto that rule. ends up being the de facto rule. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now, it's more um, lost uh, in part for the reasons described by Paul, but also because she didn't provide any evidence that her economic um, or her ability to gain a livelihood was prejudiced in any way by the policy, which actually leaves the door open to a new a second challenge by a driver who can show that their ability to gain a livelihood was in some way prejudiced by their inability to get a maximum safe driver discount on their insurance. So there could be a case where it is arguable. The door is not completely shut on this.
0: I think you'd have to have pretty good evidence. Yes. Yeah. And the judge did leave it open. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, she did bring a second argument, also losing on that, um, that her equality rights were violated, um, that people from Ontario were treated badly.
0: That, yeah, it, so the judge said it wasn't an immutable characteristic. Yeah. The, uh, I, you know, for years, my, all of my connection to Ontario, with all the first few times I drove to Ontario, when I got to the border, I noticed that all the men had mustaches. And I started to think that maybe it was an immutable characteristic, that perhaps there was something in the water uh but um yeah there is not um you you cannot say that you are a uh, historically um historically uh, discriminated disadvantaged. against dis- disadvantaged class of people from Ontario the ontarians um have uh, ruled this country for for generations i don't think that you could say that they are a historically disadvantaged class with immutable characteristics of uh of um the stigma of ontario
1: yes so she lost uh, basically both uh, arguments that she made. I don't think that there's any way that this Section 15 claim could be reinvigorated with better facts.
0: So even if she had the better facts, you think she's still going to lose?
1: Yeah, you, there's, no, there's no legal support for the notion that uh, being a driver um, and being from a different province... <clears throat> leads to discrimination, is an immutable characteristic, and a historically disadvantaged group that suffers discrimination.
0: All right, so now here's all my stereotypes. I've noticed that people in Manitoba drive below the speed limit, uh, often side by side. And I think once they get to British Columbia, they are at higher risk for an accident, because most people here drive at 15 to 20 kilometers an hour above the speed limit. And um, people from Quebec drive uh, very aggressively, uh, especially on the highways. And I think those people, I think that those two groups um, could, be, uh, could be discriminated against by CBC and, uh, and you know, they may be able to establish that there is actually a legitimate threat.
1: You should be careful about knocking Quebecers, Paul. They are a, a powerful force to be reckoned with.
0: Well, I know. Well, in a, back when I lived in Edmonton, we used to notice that people from, uh, from with Saskatchewan license plates had a much higher likelihood of having a collision at a traffic circle. Because we had a lot of traffic circles in Edmonton. If there was a car up in the center of the traffic circle, it was a fairly good chance it was a vehicle from Saskatchewan.
1: Okay. Well, that's those my, are that's all my yes, <laughs> provincial, thank you. And, provincial and stereotypes. And this week, Paul comes in and uh, ends with his uh, with uh, the list of stereotyping. Since the court has ruled that place of residence is not an enumerated ground, apparently he feels free to discriminate against people from other provinces well, in I'm their driving. Saying
0: I'm saying the argument can be made. I, uh, you know I just take the, uh, take
1: advantage of the opportunity to discriminate uh, when the court was, gives it to you. Good work.
0: As a prosecutor here, actually, we're recording in Richmond. Today and there was a prosecutor here in Richmond years ago who was from Manitoba and I was talking to her one day and I, I said, Yeah, you know, I, I I lived in Winnipeg for a while. I, the one thing that always shocked me was people driving side by side. There's only two cars on the road, it's a two lane two lanes each direction, they're driving side by side at ten kilometers an hour under the speed limit. And she didn't believe me until she went back home. And everywhere she went, it was, you know, driving to Selkirk from the airport, driving side by side with somebody else. And she asked her father about it. He said, Whoa, well it's very safe this way. He knows where I am and I know where he is. It's like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Interesting.
1: All right. Well, uh, next week, we will have more exciting driving law-related topics for you. Um, We may break down civil forfeiture and driving law a little bit more in the future. Um, And uh, tune in uh, to hear any other related driving issues next week. We have a new podcast every Friday. And if you need to reach either me or Paul, you can find us at VancouverCriminallaw.com or give us a call, 604-685-8889. And Paul has one final shout-out.
0: Bye-bye.